Um, I went to, normally I wouldn't bother, but there are lots of verses this morning, and I want you guys to know that what we're going to talk about, I'm not making it up, do you know? Uh, and uh, just in case you don't follow each of them with the Bible in front of you, uh, I want you to know that it's actually there in, uh, in the Bible, that that matters far more than any conversations that we might have uh, this morning. So we're the second Sunday in this uh, series of big truths, big ideas about God, uh, doctrines, if you like, and uh, this morning we're going to look at the detail uh, in, in a sweeping kind of way, the detail about who God is. Remember last week we said that uh, God has revealed himself to us, he's made himself known. Everywhere you look in creation, everywhere you look in men and women, you can see signs, clues to God's presence signs and clues to the kind of God that he is. But how would we know more? How could the goldfish, remember the analogy, in the goldfish bowl, understand that there was a world outside their bowl, unless somehow someone from outside the bowl could get in the bowl and communicate to them on their terms? That's what we believe God has done. God hasn't stayed out of the way, up there in heaven somewhere, hiding in the clouds. Instead, he's come down into our bowl of existence, into our world, and made himself known. So that we can begin to understand who he is, the kind of God that he is, what's he like, and how we might begin to relate to him and uh, know him. So most, if not all of that, was last week. You can catch up with that online if you're interested. Firstly, I think we have to just accept that we can never fully understand God. If I could fully understand God, then I would be God and He wouldn't be. That's a worrying thought for me and a very scary thought for you. So the idea that we want to know everything that there is to know about God, and unless I can understand everything there is to know about Him, then quite frankly I'm not really going to believe in Him or bother with Him, is a ridiculous place to start. We have to accept where we are in the order of things. God is the creator, we are those who've been created. It stands to reason, therefore, that I will not be able to fully understand everything that there is to understand about God. The understanding of Him and about Him has no limits. And so we say, technically, that God is incomprehensible. And we use that term uh, as it's been traditionally used in this context to mean that God cannot be fully known. As distinct from the way we might use that term today, meaning I can't understand anything about it. My maths book is totally incomprehensible. I don't understand it from top to bottom. We're not saying that about God. There is lots that we can understand about Him, but we cannot expect to know everything about Him. And in the next three hours and 20 minutes, which is all I've got left after messing with the computer, um, I will do my best to highlight just some of the main things that we can know for sure about God. And that's the pursuit that we'll be in. But before I do, I want you to think about something else. Don't settle for the CV. The Bible, if you like, is many things. It is also God's CV. It is revealing something of himself to us. If you've ever done any interviewing for a job, you might have looked at a CV and the CV reads just fantastic. There are two things going on. Either you're about to meet Superman or Superwoman or it's a complete fabrication. Your experience will be that usually the latter is the case. 
But if you get a fantastic CV, what you can't do is put it to one side. If you get a fantastic CV, you have to push on to meet them, don't you? Oh, a little bit of interaction would really help us get through what might be a long morning. So you get this fantastic CV and you go, well, I've got to meet them. I've got to rule them in or rule them out because what I'm reading about them is just fantastic. What you read about God in the Bible is just fantastic. Most people think it isn't because they haven't read it. Most who have read it recognize that what the Bible says about God is just fantastic. Don't leave it there. Because on every page of the Bible is an invitation to check it out for yourself. To see if the real thing, the real person, matches up to the CV. We're encouraged to taste and see, to find out whether the Lord is as good as He says He is in His Word. To push on and trust the Lord forever and see for ourselves whether He is the rock eternal to discover that if we seek Him, we'll lack no good thing. Today's God's CV, but I urge you not to stop there, but to push on to meet Him and to know Him. Okay, here we go. Characteristics of God, two main categories. The first one has traditionally been called God's incommunicable attributes. That is, those things about God that He does not share, communicate with us. So things that are true about God that most certainly aren't true about us. God is eternal, we aren't. We had a beginning. So God's, God's nature being eternal is an incommunicable attribute. An attribute He does not choose to share with us. He has not shared with us, would not share with us. And then secondly, His communicable attributes, which are those attributes that He does share with us. For example, God is love. We also, in a smaller measure, can love. I share something of God's nature when I love. It's a nature, an attribute of God that He has shared with us. So, we look at the big one first, the incommunicable attributes, those things about God that He doesn't share with us. And the Bible sums it up in just two different words. The first word, God's glory. Often, you'll read in the Bible about God's glory. And it's not a word that we use very often. In normal life, you might hardly ever hear the word used. The last time you heard the word glory might be when your gran sat on something sharp and went, ooh, glory be. And, sorry? What does glory mean? Well, when we start talking about God's glory, and interestingly enough, when the disciples saw Jesus, who was God come to earth, they said, well, actually, it's like we've seen God's glory in Jesus. He lived among us, and we've seen the glory. What do they mean? They mean the wonder, the beauty, the majesty, the awesomeness, the greatness, the splendor, the sheer brilliance of God. If God showed up here in all His glory, we'd be face down. It would be too much for us. It's a bit vague though, isn't it? 
And you might say, well, why is it a bit vague? It's a bit vague because God is something that we are not. The moment we try and bring it down to something that we can communicate with words uh, and make analogies that we can understand, we've so reduced His glory to something different, we're almost not speaking about it at all. Another word that we sometimes use is transcendence. God's otherness. Transcendent is described in the dictionary as a a being surpassing and beyond all limits. God who is other, who is beyond us. What does it mean in reality? Well, it means that God is independent. It's one way that we can distinguish so clearly between you and me and God Himself. God does not need anything or anyone in order to survive. That's not true for you or me. If the rain from heaven stopped, we would die. If the sun stopped shining, we would die. If someone stops loving me, I will die inside. I am totally dependent on God and on others. God is not like that. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our faith. He doesn't need this creation. He needs Nothing. He's totally independent. Which puts your service of Him and mine into some kind of perspective. Sometimes I feel so good that I've helped God. As if He needed it. He is independent. That's what we mean by God's glory. He's immutable or He's unchangeable. We change. We live in a world that changes constantly and faster and faster. And it's a reassurance that God does not change. He is infinite. He has no limits. Whatever limits you choose to put on Him, He outstrips all of those limits. You can't measure Him. Whatever He is, He is greater than that. Whatever measure you make, He pushes back the measurement to make your measurement of Him meaningless. That's why trying to describe him is almost impossible. Because he's above and beyond and other and different and, and, and. The other big word that the Bible, major word that the Bible uses to describe the the attributes of God that only God has, that he doesn't share with anybody else, that's his lordship, God's lordship. All through the Bible, uh, you see the word Lord in capital letters, referring to the name originally given by God. In other words, to say, we're talking about the Lord who is above all else. He's Lord of all. Lord of all power. That's reassuring. When the powers of this world rage, don't you think? He's Lord of all uh, power. And Jesus is Lord of all power. He's Lord of all space. You can't go anywhere and get away from him. Now that can be a worry sometimes, can't it? To know that there's nothing that you can hide in your heart that he does not see. And there is no place that you can go where he cannot find you. But whilst it might be a worry, I want to also say it's a huge comfort. I cannot find myself out of God's reach. Hallelujah. Every space I find myself in, he is there, Lord of it all. 
And as uh, Jeremiah uh, said, uh, reflecting what God has said to him, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth? He's there, everywhere. I can't get away from him. Even though I walk through death's dark valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. There, even in that place. He's the Lord of all time. So if you push the boundaries of space, He's Lord of it all. Push the boundaries of time and you discover that He's Lord of it all. Before the mountains were born or were brought forth, you are from everlasting to everlasting. To God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority before all ages, before all time, now and forevermore. He's the Lord of all knowledge. And the Lord of all peoples. I need to know that my God's like that. Sometimes our God is too small. And we go, shall I trust him? No, I'd rather trust in my own power and in my own ability and in my own strength. And we need to wake up in our spirits how totally absurd it is to assert ourselves over this all-creator God who is Lord of all people. Hey, he's Lord of all political parties and all races and all genders and all beliefs and all nations, all religions and all cultures. Jesus rules over angels and demons. He rules over people, whatever they say about their sexuality. He rules over people, whatever they say about their spirituality. Buddhists, Baha'is, Mormons, JWs, Unitarians, atheists, agnostics, Scientologists, men, women and children. Lord of it all. Nations, kings, kingdoms, queens and princes. Lord of all philosophies, the postmoderns, the moderns, the existentialists, the naturists, the whatever you decide to go for. Lord of it all. And then we go, hey, I'll, I'll be in charge of my life, thank you. Strange, isn't it? The biggest flaw in us as human beings is we think we're much bigger in this whole thing than we really are. In one way. God's glory, God's lordship. And then there are those things that he chooses to share with us. God is a relational being. And hey, whoa, suddenly... He's a bit more on my terms. I can do that a little bit in a bloke kind of way. He's a relational being. That's why relationships are so important. And we'll look at in a few weeks' time that in fact God, before anything else existed, was in relationship with himself. Sounds strange, I know. But some things about God are strange. I'll never understand them. Doesn't stop it being true as we look at the Trinity. God is also a functional being. He does things. He has a purpose. And I think, oh, that's cool. I have a purpose sometimes in a blokey kind of way. God does things. He's the creator, the sustainer, the provider, the healer, the deliverer, the maker. He has roles. He's father, king, judge, and so on. But whoa, I have a role to play. This is an attribute, something about God that I'm sharing in. And then the one that I want to talk about just for the final part of our time here this morning. God is a moral being. I go, hmm, yeah, I, I relate to that. I, I, I know that things are right and things are, are wrong. I understand what it means to be a moral being. Two things about God's m- being 
God being a moral being. The first is his love, and the second is his holiness. And that's where we're coming into land this morning. God is love. God is love. It's probably the most well-known thing about God, maybe. Although, interestingly enough, whilst most people would say, well, what's God like? I think he's a loving God. I meet people every single day of my working life who, because of the way that they live, question whether God still loves them. Have you ever questioned whether God loves you? God loves you. That's who he is. That's his nature. That's what you can be confident about. And God's not moody. You see, some people that love you are moody, aren't they? Ha, watch who laughed. You know? (laughs) And the love kind of wanes and their expression of it goes up and down. God's not moody. God is utterly consistent. In that sense, he's boring. He will always love you. You don't go to him today and go, well, I wonder what kind of response I'll get from him. He'll love you. Doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, he'll love you. Doesn't matter who you are, what you think about yourself, what others around you are saying about you today, he loves you. God is love, totally. And he hasn't just sat in heaven and said, hmm, I love you. He's done something about it. And one of the greatest definitions of love might be this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. It's a totally new depth of love altogether. So they used a different word from the normal word they would use for love in order to remind themselves that God's love is totally different. It's not friendship love or sexual love, using the Greek word eros, but a a depth of love called agape, which is a love that loves even when nothing comes back. So Paul would say God demonstrates his own agape, his own depth of love towards us, love that keeps coming, whatever comes back. And we know he did that because while we were giving nothing back to him, while we were still sinners, while we were living against him, he still loved us. And the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world, the particular word used for world is that of a dark, sinful, corrupt world. A world that has done nothing to honor him, God still loved that world. That's not the kind of love we see most of the time in our world. We share in it a little bit. God's love is unique and we're called to love in response. As part of God's love, we might talk about uh, God's goodness. As part of God's love, we might talk about his mercy and his grace. And also as part of God's love, we might talk about his jealousy. We often think of the word jealous in very negative terms. And in fact, in our world, uh, so often to be jealous of someone or something is a bad, inappropriate thing to do. The Bible talks about God being jealous for you. He loves you so much, he will not share you with anybody else. He wants you for himself. That's how much he loves you. And when you give your honour, your allegiance, your, the fundamental focus of your heart to something or someone else, he is grieved. Because he wants you. Because he loves you. 
He wants you because he loves you. He wants our attention. He's jealous for our welfare. He's jealous for our protection and so on and so forth. Part of God being a moral being is that he's a God of love. But also, part of God being a moral being is that he is holy. That's another word we don't often use in normal speak, except holy cow, some people say, which I've never understood. If anything in life is holy, it probably isn't a cow, at least from our Western perspective. The Bible uses it a lot. God is holy. Well, it's a bit like his glory. He's other, he's different. You can't begin to describe him. As soon as you try and describe him, you're you're, you're pulling him down to our level because he's just beyond who we are and beyond everything uh, about us. He's separate from us. But we're called, in that sense, to be different and separate from the world in which we live. Make every effort to live in peace and be holy. Be different from everybody else in the way that God is different. God is separate. But it also has a very ethical dimension. It means that God is utterly pure and perfect. It says something about God's righteousness about God's purity, about his rightness in in judgment, his moral perfection. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. How close are you to that one? The Lord is righteous in all his ways which is very closely related to his justice. The Bible says that God is absolutely just. He will not intolerate injustice. Everything that's wrong, therefore, must be judged. Cannot be ignored. Cannot be let go of. If our legal system, in our legal system rather, we would say that justice had not been done if a guilty person was cleared. We would say that the system was corrupt, unjust. Something inside us would fight against that being allowed to happen. It is in very, very small measure a mirror of God's justice Within us, God's righteousness demands that He judges the things that are wrong in our world. And we want Him to, don't we? Think about it with me for a moment. Would we like this world of wrongs just to be left? Or would we rather things be put right? I think deep in our hearts, All of us want wrongs to be put right. All of us do not, cannot cope with or accept a world like ours where nothing is concluded satisfactorily. A world of rape and torture and abuse and genocide and cheating and killing and stealing, and hating, and degrading, and devaluing, and destroying. We want it sorted out, don't we? God will sort it out. 
That's his justice. A putting right of all that is wrong. Now the only wrong we're not sure about God putting right is the wrong in us. And with the greatest respect, there's wrong in all of us. The seeds of great wickedness lie in every human heart. And God will sort it out because he is pure and holy and righteous and just. That's why the Bible speaks of his anger sometimes. We don't like to talk about God being angry. It bothers us. But I have to say that the longer that I've been in ministry, the more I understand God's anger, God's wrath. And the more I understand it is because every day I see how sin so utterly it, it destroys what's good in people's hearts and in people's lives. The mess that we see sin making in our lives makes God angry. And the more I see it, the more I understand it. Every single issue, every pain, every heartache, every agony, someone somewhere broke the rules. No wonder God's angry at what we've done to one another. No wonder God's angry at what we face. No wonder God can't stand what sin does to people. You okay for some truth even if it hurts? You might say it's a bit late now. But we're, we're all the objects of God's anger, the Bible says. God, God's angry with all of us because of what we've done. Because of the mess that we've made. He, he hates it. He hates the wrong in you and the wrong in me. He hates it because it screws you up. He hates it because it screws others up. He hates it because it robs you of the beauty and wonder for which you were created. God hates the way sin mars you and pollutes you. God hates the way sin degrades you. God hates the way sin makes you feel about yourself. God hates the way sin alienates you from other people. Above all, God hates the way sin alienates you from Him. What a weak, insipid, ineffectual God He would be if he didn't make a stand against sin. Don't you think? If a child molester was brought to court with overwhelming evidence against him and the court rather nonchalantly began to hear the case and say, oh, don't worry, we can't be bothered, let him go. We'd be outraged. And similarly, we would be outraged to know there's a God in heaven who at the end of the day will say, oh, I can't be bothered, just let it go. No. We have a God who'll put things right. A God who'll settle the score. A God who'll judge. And because of the world in which we live, the Bible says the wrath of God is coming. I have to say that this threw God into a total crisis. Not that God was surprised or caught off guard by it. He's not like us in that way. But there was God knowing that he can't possibly leave the sin of this world undone, that accounts must be settled. It would be totally wrong to turn a blind eye and say, whatever, it doesn't matter. Look at the agony that human beings have gone through. Well, I'll just overlook it, shall I? 
No, a God worth his salt, a God who is strong and righteous and pure would say, no, I have to deal with that. I've got to sort it out. I've got to, I've got to resolve it. I've got to stand against it. There must be a penalty for this. But the thought broke his heart. This crisis in God. What would he do? What would he do? Allow sin to take its course. Sin separates. The last thing God could ever imagine was to be separated from you. Think about what it might mean for Claire and Richard to be separated from Lucy today. And multiply that exponentially, how God feels about being separated from you. But but, but what can he do? Overlook the sin? Pretend it hasn't happened? Pretend it doesn't matter? Pretend no one cares? Sin brings death. The Bible says the consequence, the wages, what you get paid back if you behave this way. Oh, great, it's been a wonderful morning this morning. Um, God says, uh, uh, does it matter? Does it matter? Do I, do I just leave these people that I love to face the consequences of their own sin? God couldn't begin just God couldn't begin to even contemplate doing that. So we had to do something about it. He had to do something that would deal with the sin and not let you face it yourself. You think, well, I don't understand why Christians get in such a, a focus about the cross. <laughs> why, why are Christians so into the cross? The reason Christians are so into the cross is that there God did it. God sorted it out. Their God, in his utter wisdom and grace, said, I can't just ignore sin, I've got to deal with it. So I'll deal with it myself, so that they don't need to deal with it themselves. I'll deal with it myself, so they don't have to. That was God's response in the cross. And it amazes me that God should respond that way. But that's what he did. That's what he did. The Bible says this. Instead of allowing the weight of sin and its judgment to fall on all of us, he'd make it fall on Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus dying? Every lie, every cheat, every harsh word, every impure thought, all falling on him. No wonder it went dark, the Bible says. And there he dealt with it. So, the wages of sin might be death. That's what sin leads to. But because he took it himself, the gift of God is what? It is life. But like any gift, you have to receive it. Uh, And this question is just ever so simple this morning. And that's what will you do? What will you do? Will you deal with your sin today by allowing Jesus to pick up the tab Or will you wait for God to deal with it at the end? It's got to be dealt with. God's righteous and pure and holy. There's no way around it. We can't duck and dive. We can't can't expect it just to be overlooked and ignored. That's not how it works. And really, we know that's not how it should work. But he has dealt with it. And if you find a happy Christian, you might ask yourself, why are Christians so happy? It's because they understand that it's been dealt with. It's been fixed, resolved. How do you respond? Just by believing. 
believing in the Son, believing in His death for you on the cross. And in that way, God's righteousness remains and His love has been demonstrated. You see, God is sovereign. He's sovereign and He's Lord over all. But the most amazing thing is not only is He sovereign, but He's also Saviour. He's also Saviour. And that's what's on His CV. That's what the Bible says. He's sovereign and He came to save. He's that good. And the invitation is for you not just to read it on the CV, but go, am I going to meet this God? Am I going to know Him? Or am I just going to leave it with some knowledge about what He may be like? If you've ever sat in an interview and you thought, I've got to meet this person that I'm reading about, hey, you've got to meet this guy. The Lord of all, who is sovereign, who went to great lengths to be saviour. We're going to sing together. We're going to sing about the cross. We're going to sing about God being saviour. As we sing this song, I invite you to think about God of all time, God of all space, God of all knowledge, God of all peoples, there giving himself there on the cross for you and for me. God is sovereign and saviour. Let's stand and sing together.